Second Samuel this evening, chapter 18 for us. A Wasted Life is the title. When I first started studying the Bible and listening to cassettes back then, that's many of the teachings were on, or buying books and looking at the table of contents for where do I, what do I want to read, it was never the title that got me. It was always the text, always what scripture verse was the speaker speaking on. And uh, I say that because this, in this chapter, you could use 20 different titles and be accurate. It's a tough chapter if you are going through uh, a situation where you have a child that is uh, turning against you. And so knowing what the material is about uh, does help. But uh, the text, it is so important in this 18th chapter, is uh, forcing us to face facts. I, I like facts when they're in my favor. But facts don't really care whether I like them or not. Uh, truth always makes a demand on us to line up with it or not. And... In this 18th chapter of 2 Samuel, here is the tragic conclusion of a wasted life, a life that had so much potential, born into, uh, as we would say, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, and all of it thrown away at the cost to so many others. Uh, God himself has decided to leave us with many facts to face in Scripture. A lot of Scripture is hard to to take, but we must. And uh, it, an unpleasant lesson this evening, and, and the outstanding part of the lesson is simply, in three words, Satan is real, and he won't leave us alone. I can't tell you how many times in ministry, you know, uh, just, uh, just before coming to the pulpit, Satan will attack with something. And it's usually something petty and small, and you have to learn to, to keep it petty and small because it will balloon very quickly. Uh, may we never be unaware or unprepared for what he's going to throw at us. And by that, that we, our response will be uh, Christ-like. We must be alert. We have to be ready. I love this passage in Song of Solomon. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night, because of the devil's work. And this was the entourage, the guards for, for the king's entourage. And we serve a king, and we are supposed to have the sword of the word. And so here in this chapter, the tragedy of a child, determined to punish his parent, at least one of them. We don't hear about his mom, but we do hear about uh, Absalom, uh, of course, trying to kill his father to take the throne. There's nothing new about this. Uh, it happens to this day. There's nothing noble about it. Uh, he is no doubt smug as he is sneaky. Remember, he stole the hearts of the people. And uh, he is evil as he is, justifying, of course, his behavior. He doesn't see anything wrong with it. He has no intention to stop. And again, there's nothing new about this. Satan is real, and he will waste a life given the opportunity. This is the lesson that comes out of this, this chapter and others. Uh, many could see the fate of Solomon, but couldn't stop it. What remedy was there? So what do you do with that? Well, you learn. There are other people. God uh, knows how easy it is for children to turn on parents, so much so that he is etched into the scripture, in the Ten Commandments, you honor your mother and father. It's funny. A lot of Christians want their children to honor them, but they won't honor the church. They won't honor the pastors. What's up with that? Selective obedience, that's what's up with that. Saul had that. God wants to thwart this practice. The Bible makes us weep over sin. It, 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 if you're earnest in coming to God's word, it makes you weep over sin and form strategies against its progress. Uh, and that's when it can get very ugly because of our carnal nature. And refusal to face the facts 
the ugly facts, to learn from them, uh, it, it brings a killing frost to the fruit of the Spirit if we're not careful. And so throughout Scripture, our heroes face facts. Joseph had to face facts. His brothers sold him into slavery. He was framed for a crime he did not do. Esther had to face facts. If it ain't you, it's going to be somebody else. Uh, Mordecai had to face facts. Can't let Haman get away with this. I don't care what it cost. Uh, these lessons are for us, and they're very easy to learn, and sometimes they're very difficult to implement and, and still be balanced with truth and love. Well, that's my introduction for this difficult chapter. Let's look at verse 1. And David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Well, uh, David has, he's taking command here as he prepares his army. But remember, he's phasing in and out. He's not the same man. I know I'm repeating myself with that. But at one moment, he's taking charge. The next moment, he's, he's back into, you know, this melancholy spirit that uh, is dragging him down because of his guilt. Absalom had delayed in getting to the battlefield following the advice of Hushai, David's friend, and not listening to Ahithophel, who gave solid advice. And that delay allowed David to amass sympathizers with him and to ready his forces. He now has thousands of troops, uh, uh, additional troops. We get that at verse 4. Um, we're not at verse 4, but we will read that at verse 4. And the exact troop strength seems to remain classified. Verse 2. Then David set out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Itai the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. So David employs the common three-pronged attack. We come across this uh, from time to time in the Old Testament. <clears throat> it always shows up as successful when implemented by the Jews, where he says, I also will surely go out with you. Well, a noble gesture, but not wise, a foolish idea. Uh, David, again, still not himself, living under guilt. Uh, in this case, unlike chapter 11, where he needed to be out with his troops, here he needs to stay as far away from the theater of operations as he can. The primary objective of David's troops is to kill Absalom, just like it's, that's the primary objective of Absalom's army, is to kill David. I'd like a game of chess. Take the king out, and the game is over, uh, which was what uh, Ahithophel wanted to avoid on his side. He wanted to keep Absalom off the battlefield and kill David on it. Um, <clears throat> some suggest that David wanted to be closer to the action so that he could save his son Ahithophel, but, but I don't see how he could do that with three commanders of so many troops. Uh, I don't buy that at, at all. And so as we get to verse 4, he will easily yield if uh, really if that was his motivation to save Absalom. Uh, if that was a strong motivation, he would not have yielded so quickly. Verse 3, <clears throat> but the people answered, you shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us. Nor, if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. Uh, the writer could have said, yeah, just what Rick said about the king being taken, and we wouldn't have had to read all those words. Uh, this is David's war council, and uh, this is, of course, they've they got to save themselves, too. It's just, you know, if the king dies, what's going to happen to them? Verse 4. Then the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So uh, he, he continues. So the king stood beside the gate and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. So he's again, has a larger army now, uh, dazed still. You know, if he the old David would have just handled this so differently. Uh, but this David uh, is, is he's injured mentally. Uh, Sometimes he's almost apathetic, like this one. All right, whatever you think, you know. Uh, he's battling indifference. He's battling. He's not caving to it. And that's very noble of him, that he, he's fighting as much 
on the inside as his army is going to be fighting on the outside. Uh, where's Nathan and Gad, the prophets of God and his friends? Well, they're still alive and they're documenting events. First uh, Chronicles 29, verse 29. Now the acts of King David, first and last, indeed, they are written in the book of Samuel, the seer, in the book of Nathan, the prophet, and in the book of Gad, the seer. And the prophets are silent because there's nothing else to say. God has said what he's had to say. And uh, so wisely, they, don't, they, 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 they do not speak and make up things. As some people, you get emotional, you want to say the right thing, but that's not what God is saying. And so uh, many times we don't keep our mouths shut and we get in trouble that way. Uh, in, in prayer, in, in corporate prayer, we try to pray as the Spirit leads, not as we, you know, let's check, let me pray up for every, <laughs> let me pray for every need anybody can think of. There'll be nothing left for anybody else to pray, and I'll look very spiritual. Uh, we want to be led by the Spirit. Otherwise, who needs the Holy Spirit if you just, you know, pray for the obvious things? Um, so anyway, we, there's every reason to believe these men were sh- there with David strengthening him uh, because of their close relationship with him. They'd been with him through hard times before. Verse 5, Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Etai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain, captains orders concerning Absalom. That's a goofy rule of engagement. Uh, you know, spare the killer. David's going to refer to Absalom as the young man four times just in this chapter. And the implication is that David views him as a prodigal who can still uh, be won and, and brought out of his rebellion or grow out of his rebellion. It's wishful thinking. You, you can't blame David for thinking this, but uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a flaw in his approach. It's emotional. And, uh, it's, you know, none other than Joab's going to have to set him straight on this in the end. Uh, you know, one of those slap, you know, slap him out of it moments. You know, snap out of it, pow, kind of a thing. We get that in chapter 19. But here is David. He does not want to resign to the fact that Absalom is irretrievable. He has committed uh, two great sins already in that he has defiled the, the, the concubines and he has uh, sought, he is seeking to kill his father. And so he has uh, already committed two capital crimes and is not showing any uh, let up at all. The generals, uh, Itai, Abishai, and Joab, they remain silent. They're saying, oh, how are we supposed to do this? Uh, yeah, right. Uh, Joab is the one saying, yeah, right. If I get my hands on Absalom, he's dead, and which will happen. Uh, Joab is externally passive, but his mind is made up. He's listening to David say this, but he's saying, there's no way uh, I'm going to spare Absalom. He's bad for me. He's bad for you, David. He's bad for everybody. And that side of Joab, you have to, I don't see how you can disagree with it. Uh, Joab believed that it was harder to get permission from David than forgiveness. Uh, he's right and wrong because David is not going to forgive him. Uh, he's already at odds with Joab. Uh, anyway, even though Joab is loyal to David at this time, all the people, it says at the bottom of verse 5, all the people heard when the king gave all the captains Orders concerning Absalom. Well, those within earshot. I mean, you have a few thousand people. They're not all hearing David. Uh, But those within earshot, it would be unrealistic to think otherwise. And this comes up in the story later, and that's why the historian is careful to place it there. Uh, Verse 6. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. Now, David chose this battlefield. It has dense forests. It's on the east side of Jordan in modern day, the kingdom of Jordan. Uh, so it's on the other side of the river in Gilead's territory. And uh, it, it was a wise choice. Verse 7, the people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David. And a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. Well, that's like a 
core wiped out. Uh, that's quite a few, uh, and not surprising. It, it only takes one fool to waste lives, to bring death and maiming and misery uh, to multitudes. And that's what Absalom is doing. This is not a little thing. He's not, you know, robbing the piggy bank. He is, he is splitting the kingdom. He's cast it into a bloody war. And here are 20,000 of his troops alone slaughtered that day. Thank you, Mr. Self-Love, for this bloodbath. There's no empathy from him. If you were to say, hey, you know, 20,000, he, he doesn't care. Everybody exists to serve him. Uh, a power-crazed fool, and they, have, they come in many flavors and brands, but a power-crazed individual can be e so easily used by Satan. Self-serving pride is what we're talking about. That first sin, the first sin known to man is the sin of Satan, Lucifer. He became Satan, and it was that, uh, you know, self-exaltation. Verse 18, uh, pardon me, verse 8, you wish, verse 18... <laughs> For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Well, factor in also panic of an army in retreat, an unskilled army in retreat, because a skilled army will retreat and minimize losses. Uh, but they're just running for their lives, and they're running, you know, breaking ankles and, and, you know, compound fractures and then slaughtered. All the mess is taking place. Uh, Absalom's troops weren't ready for the terrain. Uh, Absalom is an example. He's not ready for the terrain. If he were, he would have got a high and tight haircut before entering the battlefield. <laughs> Lack of a crew cut did him in. And, and that's the truth. Uh, anyway, the, who, if you were wounded on this battlefield without the benefit of medics and, and you know, treatment, field treatment, uh, death was going to come. Uh, and it did. Verse, verse 9. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Hi, I'm Absalom. What's your name? <laughs> it's kind of goofy how it's worded. He met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under a thick bow of the trees of the, pardon me, the terebinth trees, and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule which was under him went on. I'm sorry if I read that in a clumsy way, but I'm just so eager to get to commenting on this thing. This is the goofiest thing. What are the odds of the king of the bad guys getting stuck up in a tree like this. Well, with God, it's total. That's the odd. It's, it's infinite. No way in, his, in the positive sense. Uh, some commanders in history have said that they fear nature more than the, the armies, uh, the enemy. Uh, one example of the Japanese in, on Burma. You know, how many of those saltwater crocs killed <laughs> the Japanese troops who were refusing to retreat? Some put the number up at a 1,000 or more. Some dispute it. <clears throat> I think they did. Either way, there's other examples. This is a man whose hair once weighed three pounds when they cut it. And so who knows, you know, maybe he's trying to break the record at this point. I, mean, I could get it up to four. I know I can. <laughs> it's tough to speak on this. I have little experience in it. But, again, he was left hanging between heaven and earth. I mean, there he is dangling from, from a tree. I, I, of course, it, 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 spiritually, it's intimating that he's not fit for either, for heaven or earth. That's one of the spiritual lessons. You know, he's, he's not worthy. He's going to die. He's not going to stay on earth. He's, <laughs> chances of him being in heaven, I think, are very slim. We leave that to God. Uh, but but we, we have to also, we can't ignore the facts that uh, go with it. <clears throat> so... Here, this outward emblem of his inward arrogance, again, his self-exaltation, his self-serving pride, which cannot be condemned enough. By that emblem, he is caught, suspended, unfit for both. No known inner holiness 
We never read of him praying and seeking the Lord. Uh, he's, he's just a bad apple from the beginning and seems to have been content with it. Uh, Ezekiel, we read of him also being suspended between earth and heaven in the 8th chapter. But that's in a vision. It is by the Spirit of God. The Lord takes him by the lock of his hair. And it's a gentle touch. Uh, and he gives Ezekiel the vision of the uh, filth that's going on in, amongst the uh, religious leaders of Israel in that time as God is beginning to reluctantly depart uh, the Shekinah, the temple of God. Uh, that's just a, a side note, but uh, it's, it's a contrasting note, I should act, add. Um, God can suspend us between the two by his spirit to do what he has to do, or Satan can do it his way. And Absalom had given himself over, over to Satan. Uh, no surprise there. It says, and the mule which was under him went on, as if the animal wanted nothing more to do with him, was glad to be rid of him. The mule said, you know, I don't... <clears throat> Mules, I'm told, uh, they look out for themselves more than horses. You know, <laughs> you can probably drive a horse harder than a mule, uh, but I don't know why I'm saying that. Um, probably just wish I was a cowboy. <laughs> I watch him on YouTube. I feel tired when I'm done. Uh, anyway, verse 10. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in the tree. You love how that reads. It's so casual. Like he's eating peanuts, you know. Hey, I just saw Absalom. Munch, 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 and pop a few <laughs> Hanging in a tree. Like a pinata, <laughs> you know. And it's true. It, it would be comical if it weren't so tragic. Hey, I found Absalom's hangout. What a silly but deadly picture. Uh, where is the artwork for this? I mean, good artwork. Uh, what, 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 what was going on with him at this point? Is he able to talk? Is he just grunting? What sort of look is on his face? Frustration, fear, anger, arrow? What is happening here? We don't know. He's helpless. Um. I, I mean, it's not like I have hair enough to pull myself and see if I could talk, you know. But I don't know if he can even... There's no, there's no talk recorded between the characters involved and Absalom. Verse 11, So Joab said to the man who told him, You just... In other words, you just saw what? You just saw him? And why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels and a silver... Uh, of silver and a belt. Ooh. Is that a leather belt or embossed? Because I don't want that fake stuff. Uh, anyway, striking Absalom would have been the just and right thing to do according to God's word and according to war. It just would not have been the wise thing to do for this man. He had Joab's number. He knew Joab would have used him as a pawn and had him execute well would have killed him himself for being willfully disobedient to the king's command. Joab would have covered himself, and this man knows it. And I like how he speaks up for himself, verse 12. But the man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son, for in our hearing the king commanded... You and Abishai and Itai saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. So this is a man close to the command uh, post. He was able to hear this command himself. The, sil the silly rule of engagement that makes sense to our father, but not to troops on the battlefield. And knowing Joab's reputation, uh, uh, he know, you know, Absalom is doomed. Verse 13, he continues, Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life, for there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. Hmm. He's saying, Joab, uh, you're not trustworthy. You can say whatever you want to say. You can promise me whatever you want to promise me, but you would have killed me. What is Joab's response going to be to that? Joab, verse 14, then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive 
in the midst of the terebinth tree. Well, Joab loses the argument to truth, but he doesn't care. He's got other things to do. And so he says, I cannot linger with you. It's kind of cute if you kind of, well, they're going to just hang out <laughs> lingering together. Uh, Joab wanted Absalom very dead. He doesn't take one. He takes three spears. And uh, not a word seems to have transpired between the two, between Absalom and Joab. Joab knows he's going to die. When he sees the look in Joab's, when he sees Joab, he knows he's done. This is, Joab had stepped up for Absalom, got him out of exile, went to, and, and, and escorted him back to Jerusalem, <clears throat> endured Absalom burning his field. Uh, and, and yet he feels his king has been betrayed. And so he executes the scoundrel within the law. Exodus 21, verse 15. He who strikes his father or mother shall surely be put to death. And uh, Joab says, that's my justification. Uh, this was defiance to David at the same time. That's how gray zones are made. You mix black and white, and you get grays. Um, for instance, the command, commandment to not strike your mother or father. Well, if one of them is trying to kill the other as in, in the act of murder, then you can certainly run to the defense of the other. Those are gray zones. And we can't lose sight of them or else we stop being thinkers. And that's not to the glory of God. That has done in many a Christian and created many a bad testimony. Anyway, and then if you overthink it also, then you, you get kind of messed up there too. Imagine, you know, I just read somewhere what I've always known, but that's important you know that part, so I look good. Uh, but Calvinism, you know, God didn't die for everyone. He only died for the elect. Well, how do you know who the elect are? <laughs> so, I mean, it's just the craziest doctrine. That's not what the Bible says. He says he died for the world. How do you, how do you insert that? Well, I know how they do it, and it's wrong. But anyway, I don't want to spend any more time on Calvinism uh, right now, or any other time, to be honest with you. So anyway, while he was alive in the midst of the Terramith tree, that's when he skewed him like a matador, and, uh, I mean, he couldn't even slump. He's, you know, he's just hanging there. He just, all he could just be motionless. But he, he's dying at this moment, but he's not dead yet. Verse 15, and ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. Ten being a thorough number. Uh, to bear his armor, not that he had that much armor. These were Joab's, sort of his bodyguards and attendants. Uh, they're on the battlefield. And this is why they would have heard D David's command, because of their close proximity to Joab. And uh, they knew what to do without a word. Once they saw Joab kill him, they knew, okay. And they hack him and, and, and kill him, like a sharp killing frenzy. Uh, uh, taking turns, of course. You know, ten guys can't all strike at once. They hit each other. Uh, there was no single assassin, no single person to point the finger at, except Joab. Um, but they were... He, Absalom is as dead as they could make him. It's poetic. If you look at Second Samuel 14, verse 11, in the story of trying to bring the woman of Tekoa again when she goes to David to intercede on behalf of Absalom, who's in exile, and she wants to get him back to the kingdom. Joab's put her up to this, put the script in her, her hands, and she acts it out. Uh, so she says, she's trying to convince David to have sympathy for the situation where a child is in exile and people want to hurt the child. And uh, then she said, please let the king remember Yahweh your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy anyone, lest they destroy my son. And he said, now David doesn't know he, that she is metaphorically or addressing Absalom. He's taking this as an honest court case. And uh, this is David's response. As Yahweh lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. It's, it's, it's poetic and it's prophetic. And no one understood it until maybe after this. Uh, but uh, not one hair of his head fell to the ground. He stuck up in the tree. <laughs> and that's the, you know, it's amazing 
these truths. Verse 16. So Joab blew the trumpet. And the people returned from pursuing Israel. But Joab held back the people. Uh, Just like that. It's over. The war is over. Killing Absalom saved lives. Uh, Joab's decision was the right one. It stopped even more bloodshed. Verse 17. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled everyone to his tent. (laughs) There's always stones in Israel, just like there's always hills. Uh, Imagine if if... if Israel was located on Maui, the, the Pharisees could never stone anybody. Like, where are we going to get stones? I mean, they'd have to, they'd have to export, import them. Anyway, uh, because, you, you know, you read the scriptures, and, and when, when they were always trying to take up stones to, to kill somebody, the Lord, um, like, what do they have them like? Fire extinguishers around little <laughs> buckets of stones just ready to do somebody in? <clears throat> Maybe they did, because... They always had stones. There was no shortage. Plenty of ammo here, boys. Anyway, uh, at verse 17, uh, this single passage speaks of the consequence to such behavior as Absalom exhibited. Now, he's hanging in a tree, and just to read part, Deuteronomy 18 to 23 covers this whole thing, but I'll just take verse 23 about someone hanging in a tree. Uh, His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is accursed of God. And, of course, this applies to Absalom, uh, his crimes and his punishment. This was not the tomb that Absalom had prepared for himself. He raised for himself a costly mausoleum uh, known as Absalom's Pillar there in the Kidron Valley at the King's Dale. That's where he had erected this monument for himself because he was full of himself. Saul did the same, a similar thing, raised a monument for himself. But that was the tomb he was supposed to occupy, not some uh, place out in the field with a bunch of stones thrown over his body. He was supposed to lay that flawless body in royal garb in that tomb that he made for himself so that succeeding generations could walk by the monument and tarry and exclaim, Here lies Absalom, the son of David. How different this grave was, and he was treated like a dog. And we'll not finish with this point, verse 18 Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called. Uh, So there it is still, and he's still not in it. And the one that's there will talk about it for a moment. But to this day, it is called Absalom's Monument. Um, who does this? Who, who says, I'm going to build a monument for myself? Well, certainly no one that is humble thyself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you in due time. They're those kind of people who pursue such humility, even if we don't do a good job getting hold of it, we pursue it. Uh, we, we don't, self-promotion is, is not something we value or esteem. He was self-absorbed. And such self-love, this kind of self-love, makes us harmful to others in some way at some point. As I mentioned, Saul in chapter 15 made a monument for himself. Today, there's a tomb in the King's Valley outside of Jerusalem that is uh, ascribed to Absalom, but it is not uh, perhaps it's the same site. We can give that much, but we know that, that it's not because the architecture is later, as much as a thousand years later before that kind of architecture was, was used. It was common 
amongst the Jews to bring their unruly children to this monument uh, that has that is still there to this day, and sort of you know use it as an iconic warning to their children. This is going to happen to you if you don't eat all your spinach when I tell you to eat you know, something like that. And you know this is the story of Absalom. And unfortunately, many who need to hear it dismiss it or aren't ever there to hear it. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. Well, in chapter 14, it says he had three sons. So either they died or he built the monument before he had sons. Um, there's a lot of room for that. Uh, but it, that, that's all we know, and that's sufficient. Verse 19, then Ahimeaz the son of Zadok, said, let me run now and take the news to the king. How Yahweh has avenged him on his enemies. I like that name, Zadok. I wish it was my name. There's a lot of names I wish were my name. Uh, my mom was going to name me Wolfgang. And, <laughs> yeah, I would have liked it, but I don't know I was a pastor, you know, shepherd of the flock called Wolfgang. <laughs> doesn't kind of fit. So God knew what he was doing, I guess. But it's, um, I had a neighbor used to call me Wolfie growing up. And I, anyway, it's that wolf nature gets us in trouble. It's not what we want. However, where am I? Uh, Ahimeaz, Zadok's son. Now, his brother, Jonathan, the two of them, remember, they hid outside of Jerusalem. The plan was the priest would get information they sent a, a female servant out to where they were hiding, uh, in, in Rogel was the place, just outside Jerusalem. Then they would take the information and, and traffic it to David. Well, once they got spotted and they had to run, and another woman hides them in a, in a, 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 a cistern, an empty cistern. And so uh, these two men were on David's side, so was their father Zadok, who is currently, Zadok is back in Jerusalem, but they're out in uh, in Gilead with David. And so my point is that these men loved David. Ahimeaz loved the king. And already having risked he and his brother their lives for him, uh, he wants to, to take the news to David. Verse 20, And Joab said to him, You shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. <laughs> but today you shall... Take no news because the king's son is dead. <clears throat> I believe it was said like that. I believe that uh, this just points out to how clumsy a diplomat Joab is. You will take it another day. Is there going to be another rebellion, Joab? I mean, how does that work? I shall take it another day. Anyway, uh, Joab trying to be nice is what it looks like. Uh, Ahimeaz did not have all the facts. All he knew is the, the, the horn, Joab blew the horn, the battle, is, the war is over. That's what he knows. He doesn't know about skewed uh, Absalom. And, and yet he, he, so Joab wants to send this Cushite to take the news. And Himeaz is saying, let me go. He's volunteering. And Joab says, you don't have anything to report. You don't know what's going on. You weren't there. Verse 21. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. Uh, evidently, Joab doesn't want to tell, you know, uh, Ahimeaz what's going, what has happened. But the Cushite knows. He's from the region of, you know, Cush, the land of Cush, uh, not the current borders we have, strict borders, Egypt, Sudan, uh, Ethiopia. Well, in these days... Uh, the Cushite was from Ethiopia, which is Nubia, which is a little bit north of modern Ethiopia. And so it's a little tricky, uh, the ancient uh, lines. So suffice it to say, he was from over there where there were a lot of insects. And everything in Africa is big. Uh, I mean, just that's where he was from. The land of buzzing wings, Isaiah, Isaiah said. And it just makes you twitch, does it not? So uh, modern Ethiopia, about 100 miles to the south uh, east of where this Kushite was from. This would make him uh, a dark-skinned African who, in that time, they were very much Egyptian. They dressed, their hair was cut, if, you know, or, you know, if they had long hair. 
very much like that, the Egyptian influence. And so I just thought that was an interesting note to share. It's been in my notes for years. Why not bring it out? We're here. Uh, verse 22. And Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, Will you run, my son, since you have no news? I'm sorry, I just can't stomach this coming from Joab. This attempt to be gentle. Why is he being gentle to Ahimeaz and nobody else? He said, you know, my son, you know, you'll get to run another day. <laughs> He's like patronizing him. And so anyway, because uh, you can't know the story of Joab and read that and think that he's, this is him. Maybe he got hit on the head on the way back. <laughs> Verse 23, but whatever happens, he said, now Ahimeaz is speaking to Joab, let me run. <laughs> It's like, Dad, I want to dance or something. So he said to him, run. And Ahimeaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. So this is almost comical. It, it, uh, Joab just is fine. You know I can't argue. I just lost one. He just lost another one. If there's nobody to kill, I can't win. Uh, he runs. Ahimeaz takes the, the plain, the flatter route. That's why he outruns the Cushite, who's running over the rugged terrain. And, uh, again, the part we can't lose sight of that makes this come to life is this man's love for David. Uh, you know, you ever watch anyone skilled at anything, it's impressive. You, you know, you, to, to see somebody, you know, maybe, maybe they can play ping pong really well. Or, or maybe they're good shadow boxes. Actually, that one's not ever exciting. Uh, but any, anyhow... Uh, to watch such love compelling him like this attract, attracts us because it means that David did something to, to get it. And that's who he was in spite of his shortcomings. He was still a man that righteous people would love in spite of his mistakes. Who doesn't want to have some of that to rub off on them? Anyway, <clears throat> having taken the flatter route, he outruns the Cushite, verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted his eyes and looked, and there was a man running alone. Uh, so, now I know, I don't know, some of you may be joggers or runners. Uh, please stay off the roads. If there's asphalt, don't run there. And especially if you have a bike. Okay, these are my personal opinions, and I know I'm not really all that serious about them, but I like my biases. They work for me. Uh, I'm, I'm being a, trying to be humorous with this. This uh, uh, The Cushite, how did he get there? Why wasn't he in Nubia or Egypt, wherever he was from? Well, he wanted to get away from those insects and those big snakes and stuff. Uh, maybe a prisoner of war or maybe, you know, trade, finds a better place to live, says, I like it here. He's an expatriate now and he lives with the Jews. Uh, and that was not uncommon and still not uncommon to this day. Verse 25, then the watchman cried out and told the king. And the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. So... Um, if this was bad news, it would be more than one runner. You would see men retreating. And the fact that it's a sole runner uh, is a positive note. The fact that there will be two runners is not negative at all. Verse 26, uh, then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there is another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings good news, yeah, because of the alone factor. But if he, if he saw a platoon of men or a company of men running, that would have been bad. Verse 27, so the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he's a good man and comes with good news. I mean, I'm curious how they knew how Ahimeaz, how did he get this recognizable run? Was he in habit of doing this? Uh, he was a priest's son. I don't know. You know, maybe they, they had the, you know, marathons and their version. But anyway, so many questions when we get into heaven. I hope there's a library. And 
I'd rather read it than, than watch somebody post it on YouTube. Nowadays, you want to read a news article? You can't. You have to see somebody speaking. I, I don't want to do that. Anyhow, uh, the, uh, only me. Uh, the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. This is the voice of nervous hope. It is good news, but for David, Absalom being captured alive meant more to him than winning the war. And that is going to come out because in verses 29 and 33, it will pour out on us. Verse 28 now. So Ahimeaz called out and said to the king, all is well. Then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, Blessed be Yahweh your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. So all he had was the, the, the horn of Joab blown, knowing that they had won the war. Verse 29, the king said, here's that 29th verse that I mentioned with David, caring more about Absalom. Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimeaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. So David is putting his miscreant child before his faithful servants. Why not say, how is Itai, who pledged his loyalty to me in life or death? How is, how is Abishai doing? How many troops did we lose? No, that's not what's on David's mind. And this is the way he's phasing in and out. No longer the man he was because of sin. And, uh, you know, how's Absalom? It's this panic voice. Uh, verse 31, of, verse 30. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And there's panic in David's eyes over Absalom. Himeaz can see it. And it hurts him because he loves David. Verse 31, just then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, there is good news, my lord, the king. For Yahweh has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. So you can tell that he's not, you know, he's, he wants to deliver the message, but he doesn't want to come out and say, they killed Absalom. He saw it. Joab told us that. Verse 32. And the king said to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? And so there's the second time so far that we see what's paramount to David. Understandable in some ways, unacceptable in others. So the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you to do you harm be like that young man. Well, he thought quick on his feet. He didn't want to come out and say it, uh, but he says it. And, uh, you know, he's, how, did we win the battle? Yes, we did. Yeah, yeah, fine. How is Absalom? His sense of Righteousness is severely compromised, it is devalued, it is damaged, and we're looking at it, and, and he, is the young man safe? Dangerous Absalom? You want to know how he's doing? Well, that's understandable, but well, there are others too, David. Absalom is not safe. Uh, this, the man who poisoned the kingdom in all of his beauty and eloquence, uh, handed it to Satan, he's dead. Life is dangerous territory. We all know that. It has been from the very beginning. There was that dangerous tree in the midst of Eden. And verse 33. Then the king was deeply moved. It's an understatement. And went up to the chamber of the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, O Absalom, my son, my son. So the sobs, the wailing of David loud in front of everyone, unbecoming of a king whose troops are dying for him. Uh, it's all over for him. It's a tragedy. And I started to name this, you know, the tragedy of Absalom because it is a tragedy. Uh, David reached uh, probably the most profound moment of suffering in his life over Absalom. Three times here, he says, my son, my son Absalom. Two more times in chapter 19, the same language is preserved for us. 
uh, in case you have any doubts about how deeply affected he is to a fault, you, you will get it in the first few verses, but we'll take 19 verse 4, 2 Samuel 19 verse 4, then David covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Well, any parent can understand, but I, it's, that's still, I, I think, you, you may disagree, maybe you've gone through something like this, and I don't want to be insensitive to that, but it at the same time, you just cannot allow the others to, to just sort of feel ashamed of themselves for winning the war, which is what Joab is going to say to him. Job's going to come out and say, what do you care more about your enemies than those who will fight and die for you? Um, so it's excessive grief. And again, we always want to be careful and not dictate to someone how they should grieve, but we want them to not be swallowed up by it, and David is at this time swallowed up by it. He will get out, but it's going to take Joab to help him. And so this is a story for uh, our youth in particular, those who still have parents, uh, don't ever dishonor them. That's just a clear Bible story. There's no way around these lessons. And I started out uh, mentioning uh, how difficult this was. Anyway, let's uh, um, finish early tonight. That adds 10 minutes to me on Sunday morning. <laughs> let's pray. Our Father, with the facts, we have to face them, and this life is cursed, and you uh, make that clear to us. But the hope, the hope that awaits the righteous will just amaze us to no end because of how awesome you are. And by faith, we know this, we accept it, and we look to perform in ways that bring glory to you nonetheless. We thank you, your patience and mercy with us. May we all get home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.